3: Welcome to Postscript, a special series from New Books and Political Science on the New Books Network, in which we look to scholars who have written extensively on a topic to offer insights into contemporary politics. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and I'm here with my co host, Lily Goren of Carroll University, to interrogate recent abortion court cases and the wider political landscape of abortion and reproductive politics. We're joined by Rebecca Kreitzer, Associate Professor of Public Policy. An adjunct associate professor of political science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Dr. Andrew R. Lewis, associate professor of political science at the University of Cincinnati, and Joshua C. Wilson, professor of political science at the University of Denver. On December 1st, the U.S. Supreme Court heard two uh, two hours of oral arguments over Mississippi's Gestational Age Act, which prohibits all abortions with exceptions for fetal abnormalities and the health of the mother after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The law has no exceptions for rape or incest, and it contradicts almost 50 years of Supreme Court doctrine that has held that women may elect to have an abortion before the fetus is viable outside the womb. Uh, The case comes in the wake of another law from Texas, SB-8, that criminalizes all abortions after six weeks of pregnancy and includes a radical enforcement mechanism that uses $10,000 bounties for those who identify people who have aided or abetted in an abortion. And just a few hours ago, the SCOTUS ruled on SB8 and we have been reading and we'll catch you up on the latest there. But our focus today will be to assess what we learned from the Mississippi oral arguments and the impact of any ruling on electoral politics, political mobilization, etc. So it's, it's a really busy morning here with many of us power reading through a majority opinion from Justice Gorsuch, uh, a more radical concurrence from Justice Thomas, uh, an attempt at moderation from Chief Justice Roberts, and a very passionate dissent from uh, Justice Sotomayor. So uh, with the proviso that all of us have just read this, wh- what did the court rule here? Who'd like to start us off with what the majority opinion, which is, is 8-1 in part, um, actually holds on SB uh, 8?
1: I, I can jump in here. Um, so the what the court majority ruled on was essentially who could be uh, sued, who could be pursued in um, terms of enjoining this law or, or stopping this law uh, because Texas SB8 was written in such a way to remove the state. And so it in removing the state from enforcing this abortion law it removed the traditional way that abortion laws are challenged in the court. And so this case uh, or this, this ruling that the court came out with was really about who could and who could not be pursued in order to bring a court case. And what the eight member majority decided on was that a small collection of state actors through the health board could be pursued, but then the, the, the rest of the range of actors, there are various disputes over.
3: Great. Does anybody want to add anything else either about the majority opinion uh, by Justice Gorsuch or any of the others that that were that came down this morning at 10 o'clock?
0: I think there's a lot to unpack and having just read it, I, my thoughts might be a little bit scattered here. But I think that what's important to note is, as um, Josh was saying, that the this decision was about who could sue. And the other parties that were at play here were the attorney general, as well as the state court clerks. Um, and so the idea being whether or not they could stop the cases from being filed. Um, and what I think is important to note here is that um, that there is a lot of disagreement about whether or not these other actors can be sued or not. And so of course, Justice Sotomayor would have said they all can be sued. Uh, but one important takeaway that Sotomayor in particular draws attention to is the potentiality that um, that we could see this um, like enforcement mechanism again bleed over into other policy areas. Um, and so drawing attention to kind of the problematic precedence that this could um, could have for other people. So in particular, what she points out is that Gorsuch basically says that these health board people can be sued because of an an exception. But if the state of Texas or other states who are looking to adopt a policy make sure to write the statute in such a way to not have this exception, then it would have allowed um, the, then it would have prevented anybody from being able to sue. Um, And so what Justice Sotomayor is drawing attention to is that then this, among other things, would cause people to not have a judicial recourse um, by way of hearing this case, as well as some of the other things that she reiterates from her previous decisions about like the um, asymmetric costs of lawsuits, et cetera.
3: And the chilling effect that this would have on what she considers to be a, a Supreme Court precedent, a fundamental right, uh, which, which she says would therefore allow a state to override what the Supreme Court is, has already said. And she sort of presents that as a kind of a constitutional truth, that what the court says should be uh, the the precedent, should, should be the first, and that this... Uh, as Josh and you have 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 said this very cleverly written law allows Texas to 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 evade that. Um, in I the add mid-
0: that she adds one stri- striking line that she draws attention in comparison to John Calhoun and defending slavery and this idea that um, whether or not the states should be able to wiggle their way out of um, of what should be mandatory by federal law.
1: Yeah, to, to add on that, the thing, a couple of the things that really jumped out to me from reading the opinions, um, one uh, was actually, and it can actually kind of be summed up by looking at the very beginning and the very end of Robert's opinion. What struck me right away is he comes out and says, this law is unconstitutional when read in relation to Roe and Casey. And it was very like right out of the gate. And, and that's pretty remarkable in light of Dobbs. Um, one thing I noticed, I, 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 this is not systematic, but a thing that jumped out at me then was in later reading Sotomayor's, she mentions viability. I don't think viability ever comes up in Roberts' discussion, and that, that has bearing on kind of Dobbs and that discussion. But the other thing that struck me out of Roberts' uh, opinion, and is again, um, reiterated by Sotomayor and brought up with this Calhoun point, is the very last line is he wrote, the nature of the federal right infringed does not matter. It is the role of the Supreme Court in our constitutional system that is at stake. And that's remarkable, again, read in light of Dobbs, because What the progressives did a great job of doing in the Dobbs oral argument was raising legitimacy concerns, but those were primarily legitimacy concerns about the court and its relationship to precedent. But there was a larger discussion by Breyer and so forth about the risk of the death of the Supreme Court. What's remarkable here is you've got the chief justice voicing those ramped up existential concerns. And that, I think, is really interesting.
3: And he goes all Marbury versus Madison to underline that. I mean, this is, this is, I agree with you, Josh, this is was a kind of a stunning opening and not exactly what I was expecting to see from the, from the chief. And I mean, he says the, the fundamental and paramount law of the nation is what the Supreme court says. And, and he brings it back to, to Marbury versus Madison. Um. I just wanted to jump in um, uh, for
4: people who are listening to this to have the distinction clarified that the Dobbs case is the Mississippi case that was heard on December 1st um, and that the Mississippi case was before SB 8, which is the case that the court ruled on today. But in terms of the opinions, there are essentially, I don't want to say echoes or reverberations between the arguments that were made on December 1st in Dobbs, and the decision today with regard to SB 8, so that people know what we're talking about.
3: Rebecca?
0: Yeah, if I can just add to that, I think um, Josh was just talking about how one thing that's interesting is in the decision that came out today, Chief Justice Roberts really doesn't take up this issue of viability. But if you were listening to the oral arguments during the Dobbs case, we actually heard Chief Justice Roberts um, raise questions about why wouldn't a pregnant person already be able to make decisions by about 15 weeks instead of the point of viability, which again, the point of viability is actually, um, there's not a single point of viability from a medical standpoint because that varies by pregnancy, But we did see that even Chief Justice Roberts, who has been raising concerns about legitimacy, seemed comfortable with the idea of changing the precedent set under Roe about um, prohibitions on pre-viability abortion.
3: Right, it does seem that what Roberts is willing to say is that our the jurisprudence was about having a choice, not about viability, and he won't use that word. He he won't go. He won't say that that is part of the precedent. He's he's severing them, and that severing would allow him to find the Mississippi gestational act constitutional without overturning Roe and Casey. Okay, we're actually moving into Dobbs, which as as Lily said, it's almost impossible not to do because no, Rebecca, Josh, everyone has, has has underlined that these cases are in conversation with each other. So the things that were said in oral arguments in SB8 prior to the Dobbs case were echoed in Dobbs. And now we hear what the oral arguments in Dobbs echoed in this opinion. We have a little bit more insight into what um Justice Roberts is doing. But before we go on to Dobbs, which is where we're going, Andrew, let, let me ask you uh, for any thoughts that you have on, on this um, morning decision on, on SBA, Texas SBA.
5: I just want to add that I think it's really interesting that there was rumors that they were going to release this decision about two weeks ago. And if they had released it then, we wouldn't have had the same sort of like conversation between the two opinion or between the opinion and the oral argument that we're having today. And so, um, it's very curious sort of how those timing dynamics played out. And, and because it's drops now, right, a week after the oral argument in Dobbs, we are getting to have these conversations. And in fact, the justices are having some of these conversations among themselves. And so it gives us, I think, a bit of peek into the types of deliberations or the types of discussions that the court's having.
3: Yeah, and I think there were some really there was some really good commentary that said that maybe the oral arguments in Dobbs were being affected by what was going on behind the scenes in in SP8. I mean, people wanted to know, like, why is Justice Kagan so quiet? She was so involved in the SP8 oral arguments. Why is she so quiet in Dobbs? All right, we're already talking about Dobbs. So let me just remind the non-court nerds that. We had two hours of live-streamed oral arguments in Dobbs, uh, in which it appeared that six of the justices thought the Mississippi gestational gestational act with the 15 weeks, which is not viability, with no exception for rape or incest, was constitutional. It really looked like there were six for that, and five justices—Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett—seemed willing to overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which are the two precedents, one from the 70s, one from the 90s, that speak to all of the main aspects of uh, the Supreme Court jurisprudence on abortion. So let's focus on Dobbs. What, what are your main takeaways from the oral arguments? What, what happened here that people should attend to? Uh, Andrew, did you want to go first?
5: Sure, happy to jump in. I think the most surprising thing uh, from my perspective is that I think many of us thought that there would be some sort of compromise brokered in this decision and the court would move incrementally to perhaps remove the viability standard but uphold some core element of the Roe-Casey legacy. And I think it became pretty clear quickly in the oral arguments that that was less likely than a lot of us thought and that a more complete overrule of the, the Roe-Casey tradition um, was increasingly likely. And I, to me, that was the most surprising thing is that um, I think a lot of us thought, maybe I'm wrong on that, but I think a lot of people I had talked to thought incrementalism was a likely outcome of, of the court and that Robert could broker that. And he seemed to have a difficult time getting allies to um, support that sort of incremental strategy. And so I, th- I thought that was perhaps the most surprising and uh, maybe important thing that came out of that oral
0: argument.
3: Rebecca, where where are you on the, the Dobbs two hours?
0: I would say that um, Republicans have been talking about um, electing and nominating Republican judges to overturn Roe versus Wade for decades, and it appears that they have done so. Um, I think what's important to note is that the composition of the court entirely determines what the opinion of the court is. And we're definitely seeing that here today. I anticipated that the, and I continue to anticipate that the court will not directly and completely overturn um, Casey and Roe versus Wade, in part because if uh, Roe versus Wade is explicitly overturned, it would put in, it would I think, that, I think that that would draw more backlash. And so I think that there's a, a strategy to kind of gut the, keep it in name, but then kind of gut it by taking away the viability standpoint, opening up the door to like, at what point could abortions be prohibited at different gestational time periods? I think that's, there's, there's interesting implications for that. Like, one is if they don't directly overturn Roe versus Wade, then it means that all of these trigger laws in about 20 states won't immediately go into effect because those would go into effect if it was explicitly overturned. But nevertheless, I anticipate that as soon as the court decides on Dobbs, which I think will kind of gut Casey but leave it nominally intact, I think that we'll see many other states uh, follow suit as quickly as they can. Uh, but amending the laws so as to like take away some of the legal challenges that um, the other states have seen in their, in their face. You know, a good example of that is that we've already seen a bill filed pre-filed in Florida so that as soon as their legislative session opens that they would be able to pass a bill similar to the Texas one. So I, I would say that like I thought Roberts would try towards incrementalism, and I think Roberts cares about maintaining precedent on some level. but on the other hand, in the past he hasn't been particularly supportive of abortion rights either.
3: No, I think people forget that. They love calling him a moderate. Uh, obviously, he has institutional concerns that the other justices don't. So burning things to the ground seems to imply that the court does just change with the people on the court, something that has been emphatically denied by Justices Breyer, Alito, Barrett, and Roberts. And uh, But he didn't seem to have takers. I think People thought perhaps it would be Kavanaugh, but that didn't pan out at all um, during oral arguments. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Rebecca. I just
0: add that I think in this mix of like not based on like what I heard listening to Dobbs, I don't necessarily think that Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett will also be in favor of completely overturning Roe versus Wade because they also both kind of seemed uh, willing to um, find some other ways of upholding Casey, but striking it down. So for example, like, I think they would be supportive of different gestational bans. So I think that if there's a coalition that comes out of it, I think that we might see a few justices try to explicitly overturn Roe versus Wade, but I would think that in the middle would be like Barrett, um, Kavanaugh and Roberts maybe.
3: Okay, Josh, what do you think?
0: Yeah, no, um, so working with with kind of the stuff
1: that, that uh, Andrew and Rebecca brought up here, um, I, w- I was with Andrew in that camp of uh, uh, thinking that the court would try to find a way to get back to an incremental politics of abortion where uh, they would ramp things up and allow states to, to whittle things back more. Um, and there was kind of a preview of this with the June medical services case, which I think now is two years ago, um, where Roberts you know, upheld whole women's health, which was the first kind of robust reading of Casey. Um, but then, laid out a way of getting back to incrementalism by talking about really having strong deference to the states and saying like if a state writes a abortion law we should presume it's legitimate and so that was this big open door to a, a, a politics of incremental regulation of abortion and then you see this argument and it's you know you you see him struggling against the other conservatives and this real like really raised the question of overruling Roe and Casey in a way that and, you know, as, as both Rebecca and Andrew said, hasn't really been talked about. And that triggers a couple things too of the way that I listen to that argument. One is, if you're going to overrule a precedent like Roe or like Casey, and not just overrule a major precedent, but you're going to do it in a political environment where everybody is paying attention to the court, which is typically not the case, and in an environment where Democrats have increasingly been invested in abortion politics and in the court, you're gonna need to marshal legitimacy, right? You're gonna need to marshal some really good arguments. And thinking back to other major overrulings, it helps to have a court that's all on board, right? We can go back to Brown versus Board of Education and you know the work to get everybody on board with this, right? And so what struck me in that oral argument were a few things. One, the rifts between the conservatives, right? And so that speaks against even being able to get a majority of conservatives onto the same page. That's problematic for legitimacy. Another thing that struck me was really the shotgun approach that conservatives were taking in this argument of kind of shopping this incredibly broad and sometimes head-scratching range of arguments from, you know, Justice Amy Coney Barrett talking about not really adoption, but dropping off your kids, your, your newborn at the firehouse. And then uh, Justice Thomas kind of resuscitating these old arguments about drug use and mothers. And right, so you got got this, this really big range of kind of shopping of ideas, which again is problematic if you're gonna try to do something big. And then on the other side of that, were the progressive justices or the liberal justices and the lawyers speaking against the Mississippi law, who really put together a really robust focused argument that had to do with legitimacy of the court and what was at stake there and adherence to precedents and so forth. And so, and then using incredibly strong language, like, Justice Sotomayor talking about, will the court be able to escape the stench of what they stand to do in this case? And Justice Breyer talking about, this is what will kill us as an institution. So really raising those stakes in very accessible arguments. And that stood in dramatic contrast to, I thought, what the conservative justices were doing in kind of this shotgun approach. And that gets us again, like that 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 kind of gets the background for some of the comments earlier about today's opinion and the concerns about legitimacy. The, the only other thing that I would also bring up here is there's kind of a one liner from Gorsuch at the end that caught my attention where he gets concerned about the slippery slope of if they get rid of viability, what will replace it? And it's kind of hard to read what he meant by this as in, is he concerned about creating a slippery slope or is this going to be used as a way to get rid of viability and then move beyond that because nothing can stand in its place? So that's a, an ambiguous line that still has me kind of wondering. But those were those are my immediate kind of takeaways from, from listening to the oral arguments.
3: If um, you, all... Uh said a lot about the politics that came before the court. I mean, Rebecca, I think you're right. The six justices were selected because of their views on abortion. So there was already a, a political process in place beforehand. Uh, Josh, you just had a piece out uh, with um, Amanda Hollis-Rusky about how those people got in place and the money that flowed towards the campaigns that put pressure on the Republican Party to do that. I mean, I think it's very easy to look at the oral arguments somewhat cynically. I mean, we can parse the arguments about substantive due process and the precedents, or or we can just see this as a, a partisan political process that we just watched play out. This is the result of six appointments to the Supreme Court. Am I I being too cynical?
0: I don't think you are, and I think it's worth pointing out that when, um, that right now we have on the bench several justices, in fact, like almost all the conservatives have been appointed by presidents who actually didn't win the popular vote, Um, and the appointees from Trump all were confirmed on extremely narrow grounds from a coalition of senators that represent, you know, less than 50% of the state, less than 50% of the population. But it's worth noting that during Kavanaugh's um, confirmation hearing, he pretty famously said that he believed Roe versus Wade was, quote, settled law. Um, And so it should be interesting to see if he he was not confirmed all that long ago. Um, It will be interesting to see if he still believes when it comes time to writing the Dobbs decision, if Roe Roe versus Wade is settled law, or if this is just more evidence that what people say during the Supreme Court confirmation hearings are somewhat meaningless.
2: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
3: One of you mentioned killing SCOTUS. Um, I mean, Breyer mentioned it himself, but um, we're all circling around this idea that somehow, well, they'll make an illegitimate decision and it will be against precedent. And this will reveal what we all know, which is that this was a political process in putting people on the court in order to overturn on a particular subject and now it's happened. So will it kill the political? Will it kill the Supreme Court? Uh, obviously public opinion has has turned against the court, right? Uh, but will that matter? Will this affect the um, reconstruction of the court that's being discussed? Um, Andrew, I'm sorry, if you had something before on, on what we were talking about or on this, please, um, anyone can can jump in now. Let's
5: tackle this one. I'll come back to my, my- part in a minute um i'm curious to hear what other people think about about the the legitimacy question i think looms large right and there will be a lot of parsing of this and in part people don't pay a lot of attention to the court um but this is a this is one of the cases and one of the issues that will break through right and it will break through our, our politics and that's that's really important we have already seen the court and sort of its, uh, its approval rating is sort of an all time low, according to the way Gallup has, has pulled it over the last several decades. Right. I think you're seeing a what what political scientists might call it sort of a, a thermostatic response, sort of like the as the court is moving in this conservative direction, you get this this pushback against the court. We might see some of that happening with the politics of abortion as well on people's opinion towards um, the legality of, of abortion, though. It's it's uh, public opinion on abortion is fairly steady and slow moving, right? And so I think there's a narrow band. So the, the question I think is, is can the can the court endure? I don't think, I mean, I I don't, I think there's some movement to refat court on the left, but that doesn't have a lot of legs as we saw this week, right? And and the the reality is, it's like we have a narrowly div- divided Senate that is not going to make shift that. So. My guess is that it will hurt the court, but I don't know what the long-term effects will be. And I don't know if one case um, can bring the long-term effects or it's going to be compounding. So I'm really curious about this, a lot of it I think is up in the air um, and part of it will depend on the politics that, connect, that are connected to this case over the next few years. Um, I think it seems increasingly likely that Republicans will do very well in the midterm elections. That's probably going to push to back against sort of the killing of, of the Supreme Court. The, would something like this mobilize um Democrats in certain areas even more? So I, I to me there's more questions than answers here, but there's a lot of things for us to keep track of.
1: Yeah. The couple of things that, that come to mind from this as well is so one is uh the way that I, the, the court talked about public opinion in the oral arguments, but the way they talked about public opinion seemed to be that they believed that the majority of the public was opposed to Roe, which is exactly counter to long-standing polling data, right? So the way the court talked about public opinion in relation to this case, in relation to them, was somewhat odd. Um, the other thing that comes up is, right, what, what, does the death of the Supreme Court mean? What does the stench mean? Right, and in a recent conversation with Paul Collins at UMass about this, right, like there's one way of, of viewing legitimacy problems for the Supreme Court is that people stop obeying the Supreme Court, right? They defy opinions. Um, that doesn't seem to really be the risk in this particular case, right? But it's a larger risk for the court, right? Um, the other way to view legitimacy here as being a problem is kind of is faith in the institution itself and the faith in the institution and the legitimacy it has and how the court can can marshal that against the other branches as a check on those branches. But also I think we can read this into the larger political narrative, especially since the Capitol invasion of weakening of faith in democratic institutions overall. right? And, and that's problematic, not just for the court, but for American democracy, right? So when when Breyer talks about killing us as an institution, we can also read this in, in kind of light of larger existential threats to US support of democratic institutions.
4: I I would also add to that in terms of what Josh is saying about the the sort of democratic institutions and where they are, they are. Um, being respected or not by the the public. I think it, unfortunately, I think it goes further back than the January 6th. I think that, you know, you have, you had two impeachments um, during the course of Donald Trump's administration. And in fact, we've had three impeachments in the last 40 years, which itself is a constitutional institutional check of one branch on the other branch. Um, And we also have, potentially the Supreme Court sort of just meeting the other branches where they have been in terms of you know, decreased legitimacy um, and certainly decreased respect um, from the American people in general. And the the it it might have been that the Supreme Court had an overinflated um, legitimacy because of its, you know, sort of abstraction from politics. And what we're seeing now is the, the reality of politics in the Supreme Court meeting and the sort of um, inflated position of the court being brought down to the other branches.
3: Uh, Rebecca, I wanted to ask you a question about something you said earlier. You know, you were talking about the backlash that one of the things if the court were, many people think that Roe created a backlash. It it was a gift. It was a gift to anti-abortion organizers because it gave them something to protest against. And were the court to overturn Roe, um, you know, would that give that kind of energy to the to the other side? So I I really thought that point was very, very interesting, like the extent to which they will not give 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 that gift. Um, Andrew mentioned the midterms, and I, I'm wondering, Rebecca, what you think about whether or not the conversation about abortion will switch to the electoral politics arena, because now if a politician in a a state that depends on some moderate voters is saying, yeah, I support no abortion for rape and incest. This is my position. Well, previously they could say all of that and it didn't matter because somehow the federal courts would overturn them. Will this affect politics in that way? What do you think?
0: Well, I have so much to say in response to that. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that historically, Democrats have not been as mobilized um, electorally around the Supreme Court or around the issue of abortion. And so I think that this has the potential to change both of those things. And so we've seen in recent years that conversations that have historically been really marginal within the Democratic Party about things like the Hyde Amendment, which um, prevents there from being any um, federal expenditures that that pay for abortion, Um, as well as just talking about like in the last presidential election that suddenly things like term limits and court packing became uh, like terms that people knew without having taken a political science class recently. So I think that that's interesting. And I think that we will continue to see more people raise questions about things like court pack and term limits by way of um, like mitigating some of these concerns about legitimacy. You raise this question about backlash, and I think that this has the potential for getting Democrats to become more mobilized and moderates to become more mobilized on the issue of abortion. I think that one thing that's important to bring to this conversation is that the legal reasoning for Roe versus Wade to have a legal right to abortion has to do with the legal right to privacy that's part of the penumbra of rights in the Bill of Rights. And, and, and so because of that, that legal reasoning, it has led to all sorts of things like the uh, like allowing interracial marriage, allowing contraception, allowing same-sex marriage, and so while uh, there are fewer people who are as comfortable coming forward and saying, you know, I've had an abortion and I think that abortion should be legal, there are more people who are going to be mobilized, especially around the threat of Obergefell p- potentially being overturned, and we've actually seen like some amicus briefs written by, I believe, somebody in Mississippi uh, to that. End arguing that the Supreme Court should go further and actually get, you know, by way of this legal reasoning, overturn these other things. And I think that because that impacts even more people and around an issue that people are even more comfortable talking about and advocating about, like, um, you know, maybe that will mobilize Democrats around this issue
3: and lawrence so you know yeah. which is about consensual sodomy they mentioned that as well and so mm-hmm. this this uh, you know again not to go all fancy but substantive due process this term in the 14th amendment that says life liberty and property from which all of this derives this idea that there are fundamental liberties that are in the constitution but they're not enumerated um, the 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 first case really is is comes out of of contraception, which is another sort of scary idea that if you if if substantive due process was overturned in terms of abortion, does it also impact the the Connecticut uh, contraceptive case that said, you can't tell married couples, the state can't tell married couples, they can't access it. Well, why? There's nothing about marriage in the Constitution. There's nothing about birth control. And the court was torn. Uh, They came up, uh, Justice Douglas, with this penumbra of like, well, there's a little bit of privacy in the First Amendment, the Third Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the 14th, and the Ninth. And then uh, another opinion that just said, let's look at the Ninth. We've never actually read the amendment, but it does say that everything that's not in here is retained by the people. And then uh, Justice uh, Harlan saying, We've always used substantive due process. Let's, let's let's just keep doing that. So so this I I agree with you. Really has huge implications for same sex sodomy for reproductive, not just for uh, abortion, but for access to contraception and especially for Plan B, for example, that many people consider to be abortion. Okay, we hands are up here. So Josh and then Andrew, um, please. Uh- no, no,
1: this is the, there's so many things like that can that be talked about here. And so I'm going to try to, to con- limit myself a bit here, but one of them just to, to dovetail off of where you're going, right, is another way to read The Dobbs oral argument, and then today's opinion too, is this tension between seeing the ripple effects that stand to go out from anything that's done here versus wanting to see this just as an abortion issue, right? I think that many of the conservatives are working really hard to say this is just an abortion issue and will have no further. Ripple effects and the other side is arguing no that's not the way law works right you create a tool other people pick up that tool and use that tool. Um, and I, I, this is me going out a little bit further here, I think there's probably some trust that the conservatives are trying to put in the politics of all this of those other challenges won't happen, right? We won't have to worry about those. And thus, we can try to cordon this off and think about it as an abortion only issue. Um, but again, history kind of draws that into to question. Um, other things that came to mind were, in thinking about, right, If depending on how far the court goes here, what are the political mobilization um, ramifications? And as Rebecca rightly brought up, right? Like Democrats care a lot more about abortion now than they have in the past. They care a lot more about the court now than they have in the past. But that, and so I was thinking of this recently as like, all right, this this will become a a major campaign point. Question is in the immediate, how does that stand up against something like inflation? Right? And so there's a, a tension there in the immediate, but, We shouldn't just think about this in the immediate, because to get back to where uh, Susan, where you started this question was, you know, what does this do to the overall politics? And I think any move towards overturning Roe really open up the Democratic Party to everything that the Republican Party has been had access to for decades, right, mobilizing around the court in a much more explicit way. Now fighting for something in the politics of abortion, because a lot of the what has driven this in the past is that conservatives could fight for different limitations. If we lift the barriers on those limitations, then. Democrats and progressives have stuff to fight for, which helps in mobilizing this and making it a real political issue. The other thing that this raises, and this kind of bringing these different things together, is, and this gets to Andy's work. um, Like Andy's great book talks about how abortion is used as this lens through which to teach white evangelicals to be Republicans, to be conservatives on a much broader range of issues. What happens when you remove abortion? What does that do to the GOP and to the Christian right? I would think that actually there's been enough infrastructure kind of built that this is just a blip in the road and they can move on to other things, but it still
3: raises that question. Uh, Andy, what do you think? Uh,
5: a lot of great questions. I mean, I think uh, a couple of things. I think you see, you saw in the oral arguments that the, these questions of the sort of downstream effects, right? And, and you saw someone like Justice Kavanaugh really trying to, to, to push back against some of those effects. I, I think certainly the politics um, plays against the, the major slippery slope. I mean, you're talking about, I think activism and public opinion um, are high, uh, higher, much higher on the politics of abortion uh, in opposition than they would be on going back and relitigating Obergefell, um, and and certainly, um, you know, a whole host of other cases before that. But we 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 shall see. What does this mean for the for the Democrat? I mean, I think certainly you're going to see the court come into focus in a way that never had before. And what's interesting is, you know, in the 1970s, 1980s, you had conservatives who were really mad at the court, right? And it was the institution that they had, didn't have trust in, and they thought was changing the culture and um, they wanted, they they thought it got, it got it deeply wrong, right? And so what happened is that they mobilized and they mobilized in a way not to run in politics against the court, but then also to to develop political institutions and mechanisms to actually change the court. And so I think what will be interesting is sort of how those political movements does that reverse, right? I think now you're seeing Democrats are saying like they're deeply unsatisfied with the direction of the court because of some of these, your blockbuster cases and the politics of, of who, who's on that, who's on the court and how they got there. And so are you going to see this intellectual and grassroots and coalition building that explicitly targets, um, the legal arena, right? Ideas legal ideas the politics of those ideas and the institutions to keep pushing on those and one of the things i think going all the way back right to how we got here and we got we ended up with um three trump nominees on the court and you get this major change is that the christian right was largely the minor player or the what i sometimes call the junior partner in the conservative legal movement and over time, they largely have, have brought their concerns to the forefront of that, of that movement in important ways. And I think some of these cases and the religious freedom cases are, are, are the fruits of, of bringing that forward. And so you get someone who's more of a traditional legal conservative like Justice Kavanaugh, re- really, they come on board, they're on board in this idea of this, what he calls like this neutral approach where the court largely gets out of it and we leave it to the states, right? And that serves the interests of some of the uh, Christian right activists, They might want something more, but it serves those interests. But you see this sort of confluence of activism on the right and something that used to be divisive. They used to try to put the evangelicals in the corner. And, yeah, we're we're on your team. Right. And that has come to become much more a centerpiece of the rights politics. And so um, I'm curious on how that may start to develop on the left and who's going to lead that, uh, what's going to spark it what kind of institutions will be developed to supplement it. Um, So I think those are kind of some things we can watch for.
3: Uh, Andy, that just leads to the last question. And obviously we could talk about this forever. We'll have another podcast um, to continue the conversation, but you mentioned grassroots and uh, Amy Littlefield had the piece in the times that, you know, said like, where did the pro-choice movement go wrong? And, and it, and it really argued that, they had neglected grassroots groups, particularly in the states where abortion regulation battles were being waged. They uh, this accelerated in 2010 with the Tea Party, and again they did not move to state politics. So, um, you know, a lot of this is based on the work of uh, Megan Winter, who's a journalist, not a political scientist. But but what do the political scientists think of this claim that in fact the the pro-choice movement has not done very well at the grassroots, and the 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 legacy. I mean, uh, Josh and his uh, co-author um, Amanda Halasbroski have have worked on this. They used the model of the left. They were looking at how Brown was won. They were looking at this kind of like careful. Uh, uh, progression over time of precedence. So what do we think of the ability of grassroots politics on the left? Uh, you know, are they able to 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 mobilize? Are we going to see something that we haven't seen before? i want to
0: push back on the idea that there hasn't been grassroots mobilization on the um, pro-abortion rights movement. I would say that one thing that is true is that they have not been focused as much on the politics of protecting the laws. Instead, they've been very defensively focused on maintaining access to abortion as it is. They've been in defense mode, and so it's been hard to go on the offensive. And so by way of example, I could point to the robust abortion abortion funds that have been grassroots fundraisers for helping people who otherwise wouldn't have the money to afford abortion because of the Hyde Act. Those have been around for decades since actually they predate Roe versus Wade. And those organizations today are extremely critical and they're playing a really important role in helping people cross state lines in order to get abortions today. So I think that, you know, just it's true that the pro-abortion rights movement hasn't been as successful politically with the grassroots. Roots movement, but I think it's because in part, the attention has been focused on just maintaining access at a more basic level to abortion.
1: To add to that, um, I agree that they've been on defense until recently, and I I would attribute that in in part to what they're defending against, that that the incremental politics of abortion that gives us these incremental regulations, incremental chipping away at, at access to abortion are harder to get the public to notice, and thus they're harder to get democratic activists to mobilize around. We hit a tipping point uh, with that, or we started to hit one with with, um, the filibuster in Texas, right? And then that started to bring attention to uh, what was going on at the state level, arguably for, for quite a few years, but had just started getting attention. Now with. Uh, the kind of Trump era appointees and the new attention that's been given. And now, especially with with Dobbs and so forth, that problem of getting the public to notice is gone. Right. And so there you've seen a much more robust kind of mobilization around defense recently. And then if you get a continual erosion uh, of abortion access that comes out of Dobbs, then you know, we switched the equation from being just able to play defense to now being able to play offense as well. And so that gives us a lot more mobilizing kind of traction for, uh, for abortion rights activists. Um, and then that, that opens up that question of, of how far will they go? What strategies will they pursue? And, you know, Susan, you're right, that, like Amanda and I and others kind of point at how the right learned from the left in lots of ways. We might, again, with this kind of changing of the political context, see it, change where, all right, if we're going to just view the court as wholly political, then uh, we might see the left kind of learning from the right around mobilizing around judicial appointments, playing hardball around judicial appointments, seeing that maybe, especially if, as the politics of abortion moves even more to state politics in terms of state courts and state laws, do we see mobilization around state court appointments and state court elections and so forth? And how does that mobilize money nationally? So there's, there's a, as Andy said you know, a lot earlier in this conversation, Everything that's going on right now raises many questions. So it's, it's hard to foresee what the future actually will be, but the political possibilities are kind of erupting in all sorts of different directions.
0: I just want to add some brief examples to elucidate what Josh was saying about why it's hard uh, for the pro-abortion rights uh, folks to be uh, defensive against some of these new laws. So some of the new laws, the incremental laws that have been passed are things like, they sound very technical, they'll be like requiring that abortion clinics have um, extra wide hallways and that they're, they're surgical centers, or they'll require that physicians get admitting privileges to hospitals Or there'll be things like to require additional information be provided to pregnant people. And on the face value, all of those sound somewhat justifiable. And they, you know, you could say, well, why wouldn't you be in support of a policy that adds additional regulations to keep abortion clinics safer? Well, the reality is that if you know the broader context about it, you know that those regulations don't actually make people safer, Um, they just raise the cost. Um, And so, but that's important to note because on the face, a lot of these laws, people aren't mobilized around them because they Like, well, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal on top of what already exists as policy.
3: Rebecca, does that mean that SB 8 is a gift? That it's so absurd, it's so extreme, it is the thing that could push people to understand that quite easily? Six weeks, most women know that their periods could be two weeks late. That doesn't, is, is it clear so that we no longer have the hallway problem? I think this is clearer because in those other cases, you can think, oh,
0: maybe this really is helping keep people safe. But in this case, it's a flat out ban. Like most abortion clinics in Texas have stopped providing um, services. And just the other day, the Texas legislature passed a law restricting the provision of medication abortion, which is also important to add to this discussion. And so I think that a ban like this, which is very clear, is taking away access at an early point where so many people know that they have not been didn't know about their own pregnancy people can relate to it in like a more visceral way than thinking about these kind of abstractions about meetings different medical licensure etc
3: all right it's very hard to end this conversation but andy you you are our last point
5: oh that's a big job um i think i would just say you're up to it. Um, no, no matter what happens uh this is going to move to a state political issue. It's state courts, state politics, coalitions in state legislatures. And that's largely hidden from a lot of the public. So our politics, I think, are increasingly, increasingly nationalized. And there will be a national conversation. But um, the rubber is going to meet the road in state legislatures and um, and maybe in some state courts. And so this is going to be where we're going to have to pay a lot of attention going forward, no matter what the exact ruling is that, that the Supreme Court has, because whatever the ruling is, it's going to increase increase the power of the states um, to regulate abortion. And so um, that's why I, I think we need to pay a lot of attention. And then the last thing I'll say is I think our polarization is coming to the court. And um, in some sense, it had been a bit removed from some of our polarization dynamics, and it seems to be coming directly for the court. And it's something we'll have to talk about.
3: Uh, Thanks so much, uh, Andrew Lewis, Rebecca Kreitzer, Joshua Wilson, and from Lily Gorin and I, thanks so much for listening, and we'll have other podcasts on other aspects of uh, the politics of reproduction coming over the next couple of months. Thanks.